we've uh, had a lot of good news this week. Peter and Annette Carey's uh, son, Daniel and Emma Carey, had a baby boy this week, so that's good news for them. And Kurt, turned, Kurt Peel turned 40 yesterday, so I think that's good news for him. Um, today we come to look at the Sermon on the Mount together and we start what will be uh, a number of months at looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, a couple of years ago I was getting my hair cut, um, almost three years ago now, by uh, a lady, was, I've had it cut since then, <laughs> but by a lady uh, in, in Dandenong where we were living and um, uh, we, we became quite good friends as, as she cut my hair and we talked several times, the conversation went towards um, God and we talked about God and what God meant to each of us. And um, when I got to a point uh, where I asked her about what she believed in God, um, she said, I, I believe in God, I really do, I believe in God. I just practice it in my own way. She's a really nice girl. She was a really nice person. But when it came to her understanding of of God, she said, I really do believe in him. I just practice it in my own way. And it seems like more and more people, well, I don't know more and more, but it seems like it's a real thing in our society and culture today that many people kind of like the idea of God but feel like they just prefer to practice it in their own way. The Border Mail yesterday had uh, interviewed people on the street as they do, you know, the Vox Popley sort of thing, I think it's called, and, and saying, you know, do you think you need to go to church um, to aid your faith? And every sort of person said no yesterday as they asked people. They said they didn't think church or um, going to church was an important part of um, having any faith in God. And as I think about it, I think what seems to be happening more and more is the culture becomes probably more and more anti-church, anti-establishment, and probably more and more searching in all different ways to find uh, God, to connect with God. And in this environment, sometimes the church can really cop a lot of rough criticism, and we've seen it. You know, I think um, what the Baptist group were doing up there was shocking. It was terrible. But all Christians around the world think, that's not us, you know, really, it's not us. Um, often you'll find uh, people who are atheists, like uh, Richard Dawkins, sort of saying things like that the whole thing of Christianity is that it's the root of all evil. It's the cause of all problems. When people get into church and they organise things, they just cause chaos. It's terrible. Steer clear of religion. It will, it will lead you to evil, not from evil. And I think, as I think about that, I think, why is that? Why is it that when people look at the church and at the people that are followers of Jesus, they kind of have a negative image of it? I think one of the reasons is that we as followers of Christ have so often failed to understand and to live 
in the way that he has called us to live. Because if we would hear the words of Christ, if we would seek to respond to them and to live out the reality of now who we are in him, the church, God's people would be counter-cultural. We would stand out. People would gasp and say, something is going on there. I want to be part of it. And I think if only we would take the words of the Sermon on the Mount, reflect on them, ponder them, seek to live them in every way of our lives, we will constantly find ourselves again falling short and saying, oh no, God, we just can't live the way you're calling us to and it will drive us back to God again and we will keep seeking to live in the way that he's called us to and the church will not be an irrelevant option. You know, vibrant Christ followers will not be just kind of uh, optional extras, but people will look at us and see us as salt, as light, as people that are poor in spirit, people that are hungering and thirst for righteousness, people that live in a way that is completely countercultural. Sermon on the Mount. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, have you ever thought about what it must have been like to have been a passerby when people were gathering around and hearing the voice of, of Christ speaking to the masses? As you open up Matthew's gospel, if you have it in, in front of you, uh, you, you look at the start and there's the big genealogies there explaining that uh, where Christ w was from. And then there's prophecies that are talking about what Jesus would come to do. In chapter 1, we see in verse 21, it says that Jesus, they gave him the name Jesus when Jesus was born because he will save his people from their sins. And then we see uh, all this was taking place in verse 23 to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, that the virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew in the first chapter is saying, God has come into the world. We see the visit of the Magi in chapter 2, fulfilling prophecy again as, as they came. The escape through to Egypt happens in chapter 2 and the return to Nazareth as well. And then in chapter 3, John the Baptist comes, preaching and teaching. And he's preaching, he's saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. God is breaking in in a new way. Repent. John was countercultural, that's for sure. He wore uh, camel's hair and, uh, for his clothes and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he came baptising and he said, one is coming. One is coming who will baptise you in the Holy Spirit, who will baptise you. And then in chapter 4, the temptations come and we see Jesus being tempted and sent, moving out from the wilderness. And then in, at the end of chapter 4, this is what we, we read after Jesus calls his first disciple. In 23 of chapter 4, it says, When Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among people. Jesus has come as the uh, you know, prophesied one, the one talked about. Uh, John has said, Be careful, you know, get ready, repent. The kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus now, after being baptised and going out into the wilderness, goes around preaching and teaching in the synagogues. And he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. Says that news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and paralysed, and he healed them. And then it says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across Jordan followed him. Can you imagine? (coughs) News is spreading about Jesus. People are seeing his works, hearing the words that he's saying, and the crowds are coming. People are asking, is this the one? Is this the one? Jesus was preaching, the kingdom is at hand. And he's, verse 5 begins, now when, the, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. Now, when we see uh, that the crowds Uh, are there and he goes up onto a mountainside. What what we see is that he goes up on the mountain to get away from the crowds and it seems that the disciples came up with him. They made the journey more upwards to the mountain. And so as Jesus was speaking, it seems like the immediate audience around him is the disciples. They're people who he's called and there's people who have been responding to his words and are now becoming his followers. And they're gathered around. And so as Jesus speaks now, he's going to speak to those primarily who are his disciples. But lower down the hill, a bit behind, are all the people as well, and they're going to be listening. And Jesus throughout the message is going to be giving some words to those that are listening in the distance and those to to the disciples. But for you and I as followers of Christ, he's speaking to us as we listen to the sermon, as we hear his words. He's speaking to you and I and he's speaking about how we're to live in the kingdom of God, under the reign of God, as his followers. They'd seen miracles. They'd heard his preaching. They were disillusioned, perhaps like many people are today. They'd seen the religious people and they'd looked at what what they'd been doing. They'd heard from the Pharisees and the scribes and they'd seen that kind of thing. They said, if that's religion, you can have it. Perhaps they were just longing and hoping that this would be the one. It says that he sat down and just want you to note that this is the position of a teacher, of a rabbi. Um, When people taught, teachers, rabbis taught, they would sit down and the people would gather around them to teach. So he sat down. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was there at the beginning 
who always was and always has, is and always will be, handling the word of God to the followers around who are ready. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, there was never a greater sermon ever preached. To say that this was the greatest sermon ever is a massive understatement. And to see the expressions on Jesus' face as he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As he, as he talked to people about two ways, the way that leads to life and the road that leads to death. As he talked about who are blessed. Wouldn't you have loved just to hear what he was saying? Well, these next months we're going to be able to do that and hear it. And we're going to be able to try and understand how we can apply this to our lives. People are interested in Jesus today, it seems. More interested in Jesus than, the, than perhaps the church. And there are more books and there's more debates about Jesus than ever before. And everyone wants to talk about Jesus. The new age want to talk about Jesus. They see him as just a teacher, but they think he's a great guy, great teacher. The Mormons, you know, we talked about last week, they, they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, and yet the Book of Mormon carries more weight than the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Jehovah's Witnesses talk about Jesus, but not as God. And many people were at the bottom of the mountain and were wondering how they would respond to this person. What would their response to Jesus would be? They watch from a distance and are interested and intrigued, but only a few climb the mountain. The disciples climb the mountain. I'm just praying, church, for us as a church, because I think it's just absolutely timely right now. I think we're in a real moment where uh, God is looking for followers who will really seek to take his word seriously and live them in their lives. And I just think as a church, as we gather around the Sermon on the Mount week after week and just pray that God would give us wisdom and insight and would help us to know how to respond midweek as well to the, to the things that we're learning, that we might see a church that is countercultural to all that's going around us in society. And that we might not just be like a religious group of people just turning the wheels over or keeping some organisation going, but we would be the very people of God, part of his kingdom, living according to his words and seeking to live them in our lives. I believe that if uh, churches all across Australia took seriously the words of Jesus, if if they and if we wept when we found ourselves falling short of Jesus' words, if we looked to God desperately to give us strength, and then I think we would look countercultural and we'd see a radical difference in our lives and we'd want to know God. And the sad truth is that some few have ever looked at the words of the Sermon on the Mount, let alone sought to live them. You know, um, Ruth... Bell Graham uh, talked about 
memories that she has of collecting things as a child. And this is what she says. She says, people are, are writing and talking about collectibles. They can be a hedge against inflation, sort of a, a cushion in case of depression. They're small items that can initially have cost little or nothing, but increase startlingly in value in a relatively short period of time. Included are old stamps, coins, old photographs, paintings, even certain cans and bottles. She says, I got to thinking, what would be the best collectible for me? Something that would increase in value, something that would make me really wealthy, something I could share that would be a cushion in case of depression and could provide comfort in case of death of a loved one or in, in, in old age. I had it, she says, Bible verses. I started long ago. In China, she says, Miss Lucy Fletcher offered us, her students, $5, a lot of money for a missionary's kid, if we could memorise the Sermon on the Mount. Hours and hours of going over and over, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. When time came to recite it, she says, I made one mistake, so I only got $4.50. <laughs> Tough in those days. But I wouldn't take, a, a, but I wouldn't take a thousand times that amount in place of having memorised it, she says. For her, the, the practice of memorising the Sermon on the Mount was just a wealth of help for her in her daily life. And I think that as we continue to look at this over the next you know, months, we're going to be knowing that knowing Jesus' words and seeking to live them will be an incredible wealth for us in our whole lives. How, how are we to look at it? James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, the right way to view the Sermon on the Mount, the, the nature of the kingdom, one, drives us to despair of ourselves and our morality in order that, two, we might turn to faith in Jesus Christ and that as a result of finding new life in him, we might, three, live as Jesus himself lived when he was in the world. In other words, the sermon is about how we are to become and also live as God's new humanity. And what James Montgomery Boyce would say that as we hear these words, we find that some of them seem impossible to keep. I mean, some of them are really, really impossible to keep. Like Jesus says, if a man even looks on a woman lustfully, then he's committed adultery with her in her heart. It says, you know, if you anger, if you get angry, you know, it's like murdering. And they're just overwhelming. And we say, oh, Jesus, how can we live like that? How can we do that? We can't. We fail. We fall short and we cry out to God in brokenness and we say, God, we can't live the way that you've called us to. And God says, I know you've failed. You've fallen short. So now I forgive you. Now go and live. And we seek to live it again and we keep growing and trying to live it out in our daily life and we try and become like Christ in his power and his strength and with the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to actually live the words of Jesus Christ. And then we find ourselves short again and we keep getting driven back to the feet of Jesus for strength, for power to be able to live So let's have a look at the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus, the Son of God, stands and looks at the people. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. With these words, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed, this is called the Beatitudes, these words that he speaks now, the Beatitudes. The kind of attitudes and the way that Christ's followers are to live in his kingdom, under his authority. The way that we're to live, what's normal and expected of his followers. The word blessed means uh, more than happy. Uh, Because happiness is an emotion that's dependent on outward circumstances, isn't it? Uh, Happiness comes from the things around us, but blessedness here refers to the ultimate well-being and distinctive joy that comes from those who share uh, the salvation of the kingdom, who know that they're part of God's family and that they're approved by him, that they're blessed. Don Carson uh, says that we should understand the word blessed as as approved, you know, like someone who's looking on a, on a chain line at products and saying, this one is right, this one is, is, is approved, this one passes the test. Blessed, approved, uh, over happiness, many times over is the sense of the word blessed, approved. It, it's as if Jesus is saying, is, do you know the ones who, have, who are just right, who have got it all, the ones who are, who are really got it all together in my kingdom, well, these are the kind of ones. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus was here uh, describing uh, when he says those that are blessed, uh, that the, these are the characteristics, the divinely bestowed characteristics, the well-being, the things that God, God gives belongs to the faithful people. The Beatitudes kind of demonstrate the way to uh, God's blessing. And it's interesting that when we look at these, when we go through this, there'll be the opposite often of what the world would see as the way to be blessed, the way to be truly blessed, you know. Um, they, they surprise us. See, the world, world the idea would be that Happiness is found in riches. The world would also say that happiness is found in merriment, you know, in abundance, in, in having lots of leisure and, and all these kind of things. And yet the real truth of what God approves and says is blessed is often opposite. This is the character of true faith. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Nicky Gumbel points out that there are two Greek words for poor. Um, one means that you're needing to work because you lack wealth. Okay, so you haven't got any money, so you need to work. So you're poor, got nothing in your pockets, so you better go and do some work. 
The second kind of meaning of, of poor is that you're in such a desperate state of poverty that you're dependent on others for support. Completely different. One, you just don't have, happen to have anything, so you better go and you know, work. The other one, you, you just are dependent on other people because you've got nothing at all. It's a desperate uh, state. And it seems that this second meaning is referred to here. It doesn't mean um, when we think about it that it's good to be uh, financially poor. It's not talking about um, material uh, riches or, or poverty because everybody who has been poor knows that it's, it's just not a good thing being poor. I mean, it's completely uh, inconvenient. You're often hungry. You don't know where your next meal will come from. You find you're often struggling with issues of whatever. It's, it's not a good thing being poor in and of itself. And, it, and others will know that being rich can be a really dangerous thing. I mean, it can really take your focus and, and take your eyes off Christ. And that's why Jesus warns so much about riches. But Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be poor in spirit means to recognise how far we fall short in relation to God, how, how far we fall short in relation to God's standards. When we start to see us in relationship to how God wants us to be, we just realise that we're not rich, we're poor. We fall so short. We're up to our eyeballs in debt. And then we throw ourselves on God for his mercy. You know, the kingdom of heaven flings its doors wide open to beggars, to people who feel like they're spiritually destitute. So if you feel like you're a complete failure when it comes to God and before God, take heart. Take heart. Because feeling that and knowing that means that you're poor in spirit and you're blessed if you realise how far short you fall of God's standards and you cry out to him. You know, the, the opposite of this is something that we know so well, don't we, when we think about it, is the spiritually proud the self-sufficient, you know, the ones who think that they've got it all together and, you know, the ones that kind of say, oh, look, what on earth would I waste time being spiritually poor when I'm fantastic in God's eyes? You know, the things that I've done and the way I live compared to other people, uh, who would dream of, of, of being like that? I'm changed. I'm right now. I don't need anything else. I'm fine. People who are judgmental, proud, put other people down, compare themselves and find themselves coming out on top all the time are people that Jesus' words when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, make, hopefully make them quiver because Jesus is saying blessed are those who are spiritually desperate. I want you to just notice that it says it's those people, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
they receive the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice that it's not something that's earned. It's not like um, they're the ones that will earn the kingdom of heaven. It's a gift, more than a reward uh, or a recompense. You know, it's, more, it's a gift that's given to those that are poor in spirit and come to God. Notice right at the very start of the Sermon on the Mount, can you notice what's happening here? Is that the truth of salvation coming by grace is clearly um, expressed here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that realise that they don't have anything when it comes to to standing before a holy God who is just, they realise how sinful, how far they are, how much they've fallen short, and they come and they say, oh, God. Perhaps the clearest example of one who was spiritually poor would be the thief on the cross. You remember the thief? Uh, he was obviously uh, crucified, which would have meant, you know, almost hanging naked in front of people, um, getting abused. It, they, they would put up above his head the crimes that he'd committed so everybody who walked past could look at this person and say, look what this person had done. And he knew his sin. The man was dying. He had no chance to turn things around. He was going to be dead by tea time, you know. The the guy was at the end of his road with nowhere to go, nothing to do, no way he could reform himself from the cross. And when the man starts to deal with Jesus, he's got nothing to offer. He can't offer him his fabulous gifts or his talent at worship leading or you know, he's going to do a, be a great small group leader in the future. This man comes destitute, about to die, with nothing to offer, broken. He is as poor as you can get. Yet, this is the reason he's blessed. This is exactly why He's blessed. For this man discovers that even though he's a sinner, even though he has nothing to offer, if he comes to God broken and in that attitude, if he comes to him like that, that's exactly the kind of person that God accepts and welcomes in and says, yes, you're approved. What about you? Have you ever really come to that point of realising that In your life, there's nothing but brokenness. You know, I remember that old chorus we used to sing was, all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. Do you know that what you have to offer him is brokenness and that you're spiritually poor, poor in spirit, Have you realised that? Have you come to God in that way? And blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus died for you. He can forgive you. Jesus goes on, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus would have said, for they will be comforted. Now, 
this verse flows naturally from the ones which precedes it, doesn't it? It, it flows right out of that. So mournfulness can be understood as um, an emotion that flows out of spiritual poverty. You know, when we're when we're being, when we realise how far we fall short, how far and poor we are spiritually before God, then we mourn over our sin. Do you know the word mourn? It's a strong word. Do you know when we mourn? We mourn at death, don't we? When people have died, when people we love have died, we we mourn. It's a deep sadness. It's a deep heartfelt grief over the loss that has occurred. And this is the kind of mourning that God is talking about, that Jesus is talking about. And it's completely countercultural to our world, isn't it? Like we say, people say, well, the world likes to laugh. We like to give out jokes and tell people, you know, sell cheers. We, we, if we want to get something to really work in this world, it's got to be uplifting. It's got to be exciting. It's got to be funny. It's got to be hilarious. And you'll get people that way. And the total value of life, it seems sometimes, is just to live and to have a good time, lots of fun, lots of parties, and certainly, you know, not to be spending time um, mourning, mourning. It, it, the, the world doesn't like mourners. They're kind of wet blankets to the world. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God insists that. It doesn't mean that we're to be continually sad, you know, um, forever crying. I, I reckon uh, it's not saying that we're to be always people that are so sad and upset that we're, you know, we look sour all the time. And it certainly doesn't mean that we should be mourning over, you know, little selfish needs like Jonah mourned when, when God bought a, a plant to come over him and bring shade and when it shriveled up, he got all upset about it. No, not that kind of mourning. But I think at the individual level, at yours and my level, as, as followers of Christ, as people in the kingdom and, and wanting to live in the way that he's called us to, I think what he's saying is that there is a mourning that's experienced by some who recognises the blackness of their sin, someone who recognises how, uh, how much their sin exposed to the purity of God has left them in, in a place of destituteness, you know, like... Uh, we've come realising how far we've fallen short of God and now we mourn over that sin. We're so, uh, we're so sad about that. It would be like um, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, when he came before God in the vision and, and even the angels were covering their faces as they worshipped in this awesome, reverent worship, saying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's reaction was utter devastation. He was, uh, he was crying out uh, and he's saying, you know, what a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? He said, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips. This is what, uh, what he cried out. Oh, how can I stand in God's holy presence? Now, I think not only is the mourning over our own sin, grief about the way in which our lives uh, ha- haven't matched up to what God's called us to be. And I think we need to be continually doing that. I think that there's a wider implication too. There's a mourning that uh, thinks about the sin of the world. 
the lack of integrity that we see around us, the, the cruelty that we see, the injustice that we talked about last week, the, the cheapness, the, the selfishness, all of these make us feel like, wow, um, God, we're just mourning over the fact that this world is not as you had planned it to be, that sin is all around us, that there's injustice and cruelty and hatred, and we, and we don't like that. We want to do something about it. We want to make a difference. So we mourn over our own sin, but we mourn over the, the sin of others. You know, and so many people are, are prepared to sit with Matthew 23, where Jesus condemns the, the Pharisees and the scribes and says, Woe to you, woe to you. And we go, Yes, get him, Jesus. But we don't stay with him long enough to see him mourning over the city of Jerusalem and weeping. And for us, we, we tend to be people who you know, are quick to point out other people's sin and say, yes, look what they're doing, look what they're doing. But so rare do we mourn over our own and say, oh, God. Oh, God. And many of the Christians of church history have been people that have mourned over their sin. The ones that uh, stand out, Calvin, Whitfield, Wesley, Shaftesbury, Wilberforce. These are people who mourned over their sin. And for a Christian, to be Christian is to be a real person, a realist. We realise that there is death and that it must be faced. And we realise that there is a God and he will be known as saviour or as judge. There's a reality here that there is sin and that there is um, unspeakably sin that is unspeakably ugly, and God hates it, and he and he can't and he can't stand it. And there is eternity, and there is heaven and hell, and there is, you know, people, human. This world is rushing towards it, and and within us, as we see that, as we see God's revelation revealed through the Bible, and we see that there are implications for what He's saying to our lives and to the lives of others. Within us is a is a mourning. Over sin. This is no, no. When we understand God's view of sin, we see that He mourns and we mourn with Him. Mourn over a country, people's you know, distorting the concept of truth, people seeing that there's no need. For, to know Jesus or to have uh, a faith that is lived out depending on the creator of the heavens and earth. We mourn over that. But you know what? The verse doesn't finish there. It says, for they will be comforted. It's good news, isn't it? What a comfort. There's um, no comfort and joy that can compare uh, with the, the kind of comfort and joy that comes to those who mourn. So if you don't mourn about your sin, then when it's, you realise that it's been forgiven and the equal opposite effects take, takes place. Do you know what I mean? Like if you just think it's no big deal, you know, my sin's not a big deal, then you find out you're forgiven, you go, oh, well, it's no big deal, it's good. But if you've been mourning over your sin and you recognise where you stand before God and you come before him and you realise, 
oh God, my sin is grievous to you and I realised that and I've mourned over and I've sat there, then to know that you're forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, what a joy, it's kick up your heels. It kind of makes you want to do these, these kind of things. You know, these kind of things. Very exciting. I mean, it really is a happy day. It makes you want to sing songs like that. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. Because we know that the burden has been lifted through faith in him. And, you know, at the individual level, we grieve over our sins because of the offence that it is before God. But then we learn to trust that Jesus Christ has paid the ransom for sin. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And a deep joy rushes over us that we bathe in as we discover that he has forgiven us. And then as we start to look at the world and we keep mourning over the sin, we know that one day, one day the promises in Revelation 21.4 that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The Christian faith is a faith of hope in the midst of reality. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's an old joke that goes something like this. The meek will inherit the earth. That's all right with the rest of you. You (laughs) It's a bit of a silly joke, but the, the joke's a little bit silly because meek does not mean weak. You know, it, it doesn't. And the joke sort of assimil- you know, assumes that people, if you're meek, the meek will inherit the earth, but you'll give it away just as easy as you get it because you're weak. But it's not the same as weakness. Meekness isn't. In fact, meekness is the opposite of being out of control. It's kind of um, supreme self-control empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's being led by him. Um, Aristotle uh, sort of defined uh, characteristics sort of to the extreme. He'd like to say, well, it's uh, like this in the extreme, this in the negative, and this is how you can understand what this character means. And and he said that uh, meekness, he saw it as a balance between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. So right in the middle was this happy medium between too much anger and too little anger. And uh, the word meek can also um, be the same, uh, has, a, has a sense about it of being con- in control like an animal, you know, like.
is to a meek person. And so it's interesting, isn't it, because we would say the powerful person, the popular person, the person in control will take over the earth. But here Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, do you think that's true? I mean, just from a practical kind of point of view, do you think the people that are the most angry and the most um, controlling are the people that get what they want often? Or does it seem the ones that are controlled, you know, tamed, have God as their uh, looking after where they go in life and where they're heading and live humbly, trying to learn more and more. Do you think they tend to be the ones that God lifts up? And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Barclay described this blessed beatitude like this. He said, oh, the bliss of the ones who are always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, who have every instinct, impulse and passion under control because they themselves are God-controlled, who have the humility to realise their own ignorance and weakness, own weaknesses, for such people can indeed rule the world. There you go. And then finally this morning, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We have a dog, Ollie, a little cocker spaniel at home, and I take him jogging and uh, he comes out for a jog with me. And just this week, um, we'd gone for our morning jog and I do some little exercises afterwards. And normally Ollie's quite well-behaved dog. Cocker Spaniels love to please and they really want to do the right thing so they all get worried if they're not uh, you know, doing what's right. And I was lay down for my sit-ups and he just came and started licking me on the face. I said, Ollie, what are you doing? Go away. And he, he, he sort of kept licking I said, I got a bit sterner. I said, Ollie, what are you doing? And he went back a bit, but then he came back again and he started. I said, right. I got up. I said, now, no licking. And he barked at me. (laughs) And I said, Ollie, no bark. And he barked again. I said, right, that's it. I put him in the, which is our kind of naughty corner, is... (laughs) is the garage. I put him in the garage and locked the door and I started going back about my exercise and no licking and it was great. And then as I was just getting up to do some, something else, I noticed there was no water in this bowl. And he was trying to show me in the nicest way. We'd just been for a jog and he was thirsty. While I'm going, <laughs> he's licking me like this, you know. I'm thinking, what a lovely dog, isn't he? Just... <laughs> Try him in the nice ways. I'm telling him off. So I let him out. You'll be pleased to know. But, you know, when we think about that, when we think about a dog wanting water, it's nothing like what Jesus was talking about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, the hearers in this time, they would have heard these words and they would have known what it was to be hungry. They would have known what it was to be thirsty. You know, in those times, the average worker worked on one denarius a day and that is not a wage to get fat on, that's for sure. They would often be starving and hungry and feeding the family. It would have been hard. You know, in those days, they didn't have running water on in many places and so there's only very few places that would have clean, fresh water available. And often 
what would happen is people would be travelling along and there'd be a big sandstorm and the only option would be for people to wrap their face around, stay in the midst of the sand and just wait until the sandstorm to pass and they would be thirsty and it would be almost a deathly thirst where they would be parched and longing and as they heard these words and Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we just don't understand that. Some of us have never missed more than, you know, a couple of meals at, at any one time. And we know we're a bit like Ollie. We just think, we'd like a drink, you know, please. But this is talking about a hunger that is just not going to be satisfied easily. You know, and I think when it comes to us as, as followers of Christ and those he was talking to his disciples, he was saying, uh, this kind of a hunger, this deep hunger and thirst for righteousness, have it. You know what, I think it's so lacking in our churches, in, our, in, in, in Christian people, in the church today. You know what's more like it? We, we kind of think we want to be good. We, we want to be righteous. And we think we'll give it a go for a week or two, you know. And then it gets a bit hard or something happens or, you know, we think we want to have a quiet time. But then we have a bit of a late night or someone pops over unexplained, and, you know, we can't have a quiet time when people are over or, you know, we, you know and we end up saying... It's just a bit hard, you know. Or we say, hey, we, we really can't get to church regularly even though we know that it's like that. There's just some things that keep coming up. We've got sports. Sometimes there's, you know, this and that. And by the long, we, we actually can't be regulars, you know, even though we know that it's going to help us grow in righteousness and help us grow in our faith. We think, oh, boy, you know, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, my girlfriend and I, we're going to be really good before we get married. We're not going to, yeah. And then we think, oh, it's just so hard. You know, this is uh, kind of a, a, a quote that, that someone said about the, this kind of age, the time that we're living in right now. Um, it's saying that we have really grown to a point where we don't really worry or hunger or thirst for anything much these days. We're in a place, this is Robert Louis Stevenson said, we have the malady of not wanting. You know, we just don't want for anything too much. A countercultural follower of Christ, one who's an ordinary, normal follower of Christ, will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the promise is that they will be filled. You seek me, you'll find me when you search for me with all your hearts. If my people who are called by my name will uh, humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. You know, uh, the, the psalmist says, you know, oh, like a, like a deer, I'm thirsting for you, God. And, and, you know, to those who long and to thirst, to drink, to hunger for God, he fills them. wonder how you are in the thirsty, hungry states. Well, Jesus begins with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Church, may we be those that this week go and um, recognise our, our, our poverty before God 
in and of ourselves, mourn over our sins, that we would live in humility and, and understandably that without God, our lives cannot be led in the way that he wants us to lead them. Maybe those that are just actively seeking goodness and righteousness in our life and never quitting because that's what Jesus wants of us. Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you for your words to us today. We just want to be those that are truly blessed, those that are part of your kingdom. We thank you that it's through faith in you that we become part of your kingdom. We put our trust in you and we put our faith in you, God. And we just pray that as we recognise how far that we've fallen short, how much you've forgiven us, how much we, uh, we need you every single moment, that you will be filling us, that you will be giving us more and more of you as we follow you each day. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to...